Turn to James 2. If you would. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14 this morning. You know, uh, as we turn there, I, I, I ask you guys to pray with me for this city. Um, John Knox, I don't know if you guys know who John Knox is. You know, his, his um, you know, he used to call, you know, give me Scotland or I die. You know, he really, um, that was it. You know, that's what he'd pray out to God. Give me Scotland or I die. Well, well, I think we ought to just be pleading with God for Bakersfield. You know, uh, this is where we are. And so let's just plead with God to, to, to work here. Um, you know, we need to be praying in the morning. Give us Bakersfield or we die. Um, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There are lost people here. It sounds funny. Bakersfield doesn't sound nearly as exciting or kind of, you know, cool as Scotland, does it? But still, um, it's the city where God has placed us. And wouldn't it be awesome to see him pour out a spirit and change people here um, in that way? So um, James chapter two, starting in verse 14, James two, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself is dead. If it does not have works is dead, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. Let me pray. Lord, um, as we take on this, um, what has become contra controversial text, a text that causes so much consternation for Protestants who believe in justification by faith alone. Lord, we pray that you would illumine the scripture um, to our minds, that our minds would understand it and that our hearts would rejoice in it. Lord, that we would... Um, come away with a greater understanding of how it is that you bring us to salvation and what the work of conversion does in us and the fruit that is born as a result of justifying faith, that we would understand it properly this morning. Um, and Lord, that we would rejoice in your truth and in your son. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a text I felt like I had to get to because... We've been arguing since Romans 3.21, really all the way through Romans, 
but specifically as we've walked through Paul's teaching from Romans 3.21 through chapter 4, that justification comes by faith alone. And what do we mean justification by, comes by faith alone? What we mean by that is to be justified is that you are forgiven for your sins because of the death of Christ where he paid your penalty on, it, on the cross and you are declared righteous because of the life of Christ in which he lived the perfect life you failed to and you receive that gift of justification, that legal declaration of your status before God that you are indeed righteous, you receive that through faith alone, through the instrument of faith. And that's it. You don't add anything to it. You don't add works in any way. You don't add religious ceremony or observance. You don't add law-keeping. It's faith alone. Sola fide was the cry of the reformers, which is faith alone. It has nothing to do with good works. Now, the reformers believe this. Martin Luther obviously believed this. John Calvin, others. And Sovereign Grace Church believes this. But the reformers believed it, and we believe it, ultimately because the Bible teaches it. Not because it's just a cool new trend out of the 1600s, okay, or 1500s, right? But because it's the truth of God's word. Paul teaches it clearly in Romans 3 through 4. Teaches it clearly. Look look back at Romans with me. Keep your hand in James. I'm telling you we're going to be on an adventure through several of Paul's texts this morning. But turn back to Romans chapter 1 and then we'll go forward to 3. And all the while, keep your hand in James 2 if you could. When Paul announces the theme for his letter to the church at Rome, which we've been in the midst of, he says this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the gospel is that God's Power is unleashed there by extending his righteousness to us received only by faith. Now, Paul then goes and makes this argument in chapter the rest of chapter one through chapter two, all the way through chapter three. He makes the argument. There's no way you can be justified any other way, but through the gospel of justification by faith alone. In fact, in chapter three, he caps it all off in verse 20 with this statement. Look at three verse chapter three, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He goes on and he says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, forgiven for their sins by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received. How? By faith. He goes on in verse 28. Look down there. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It sounds like the exact opposite of what James said in verse 324, doesn't it? And we'll talk about that. Or 224, I'm sorry. For one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then go down to Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him 
who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Go down to chapter four, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he'd be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Go down to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Go to chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't just do this in Romans. He does it in Galatians also. He talks about justification by faith alone in Galatians also. Look at the, the book of Galatians. Go, just keep going to Galatians. You guys know where that is, right? You've got Romans, then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and you have Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Look down at verse 21 of chapter 2 there. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Look at chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And then if you go one book over Ephesians chapter two, he very clearly states for by grace, verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So I say all that justifications by faith alone. Paul argues all that. So what happens when you're talking to your Roman Catholic friend, which I've been in debates with Roman Catholic friends, um, and they say to you, but James chapter two says in verse 24, um, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What happens when the Mormon dudes knock at your door, Right. And the same thing, well, you guys believe in faith alone, but James too clearly says that it's not by faith alone. Now I'm not trying to equate Mormonism and Roman Catholicism. So, you know, but in, in both cases, I've had these debates because they say, well, James clearly says not by faith alone. So the question is, does James contradict Paul? Does James contradict Paul? I mean, what's our response to that question. Because it seems like Paul clearly says it's by faith alone, doesn't it? And then it seems like James pretty clearly says it's not by faith alone. So what's our response? Well, one, we could do this. We could say, you know, the Bible has errors and often contradicts itself. That's one direction we could go. It would be a horrific direction because you may as well throw out the entire book, Right? We believe that in the inerrancy of scripture that God has breathed this. This is God breathed second Timothy three sixteen, 
And it is true in all that it asserts. Everything that it asserts, it's true in. And that it is, in, it is internally coherent. It agrees with itself. So we reject that response. So maybe the second response is what we'd have to do. Well, you know what? I must be misreading everything Paul has to say on the subject. I just must be misreading all that Paul says. That's one. That's a second option. And then there's a third option. You know, and this, I think this is the right option. What James is teaching is not a contradiction of Paul. What James is teaching is not a contradiction of Paul, but a rebuke of those who were, who were abusing Paul's teaching. Did you hear that? What James is teaching is not a contradiction of Paul, but a rebuke of those who were abusing Paul's teaching. It's my contention that those who use James to try to correct Paul or who use James to claim that there is a contradiction between Paul and James have generally misunderstood both Paul and James. They've misunderstood both of their writings. As we look at what James is actually teaching, it'll be clear that James' letter is really a help in understanding Paul's teaching on faith and not a contradiction. I think you guys will find that clearly. So I, I just want to get right into the text. Let's get into James um, chapter 1. Turn there first. James chapter 1. Um, so I can give you a, a bit of an overview of this book. James, verse 1, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. James is writing to Christians who have been victims of the dispersion. They've been dispersed throughout Asia Minor, Europe, etc. And he is writing to these believers who've suffered persecution, reviling of their name, and who've had various problems themselves. You can see that they've suffered some. If you look at verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But not only does he write to them about how to deal with trials and various other issues, one of the major themes that James addresses with these Jews in the dispersion is their hypocrisy. It's their hypocrisy. On more than one occasion, James points out that they claim, they claim to believe something, yet they don't live it out. In other words, he claims they're false professors. They say, I believe this, but it shows up nowhere in their life. Look at verse um, 22, for example, of chapter 1. Verse 22 of chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. It's a problem they had. They were hearers of the word. Yeah, we love the word. It's great. We believe that. But they didn't obey it. And they were deceiving themselves. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Apparently they had a problem with not being able to bridle their tongue. Some in the camp were using their tongue for destructive purposes. And he says, you claim to be religious, but you can't bridle your tongue. Your religion's worthless. Again, another form of hypocrisy that shows up there. They're dealing with the poor. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, chapter 2, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? See, the rich are oppressing them and they're treating the rich with favor and not the poor. But claiming to care about the poor, look down at verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and he's using this as an example, but it seems to be one that was relevant to them. Chapter 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, you're saying... I care about you. I want to help you in your poverty, but you do nothing for them. What's the point? It's useless. Look at chapter three, verse 13. They claim to be wise, yet did not um, demonstrate wisdom in their conduct. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? The point of in all this is that James is continually pointing out their hypocrisy. They're professing to believe something that is no way, shape, or form is showing up in their lives. He's demonstrating again and again that they continue to publicly claim to believe this and that there's no demonstration of the truth of that claim in their lives. James is saying, you know what? You believe the Bible, but you don't obey it. You say you're religious, but you never bridle your tongue. You say you care about the poor, but you don't ever help them. You say you're wise, but you never show it in your actions. Your professions of faith are worthless. Then he goes down in verse 14 and deals with their hypocrisy in regard to profession of faith, of belief in Christ for salvation. This is another area of hypocrisy he deals with here. Look what he says in verse 14 of chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Now look down at verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, person, that faith apart from works is useless? Look down at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also also faith apart from works is dead. 
if you follow the flow of James' argument, he is arguing very clearly about a particular kind of faith, and he's rebuking it. He's saying that those who say that they believe the truth, in other words, those who intellectually assent to the truth or agree with the truth, those who do that but do not have in their lives any fruit, it shows up in no way their profession is false and useless. If we understand that he's addressing a false profession of faith and arguing that this kind of false profession is not saving, then we'll understand that his argument is not against Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone, but against a perversion of that doctrine, which makes faith into an empty profession. It's likely that James is responding, in fact, to false teachers that were actually perverting Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. That was becoming quite the trend then. It's not just a trend now. I mean, we know lots of people now who think that profession of faith is all it takes. Intellectual agreement. Doesn't matter if there's any conversion and if their lives ever change. Right? Just intellectually agree and you're good to go. And then you can do whatever you want with your life. That's not just popular now. That was popular then. In fact, Paul's accused of teaching that very thing. And he has to respond to that very thing. What, what he has to respond to is the accusation that what Paul is teaching is a doctrine called antinomianism. You know what antinomianism is? Antinomianism is this. Um, anti meaning what? Against. Nomianism, which comes from nomos in Greek, which is law. Okay? Against law. In other words, Paul was being accused of being someone who says, all you got to do is believe and then go on living however you want. It doesn't matter if you care about the law. It doesn't matter if your life is ever converted or changed. Just agree with the truth and you're good to go and live recklessly. He was being accused of saying that. In fact, he has to address it in Romans 3. He even says this in Romans 3 verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. He's dealing with this accusation. Chapter 6, verse 1, he has to deal with it again. He says this. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you hear he recognizes what the objection is? The objection to justification by faith alone is that, well, then just continue in sin so grace may abound. He knew that was the accusation that was coming against him. And so he asks, should we do that? By no means is his response. He's not the only one, though, um, who deals with it. Obviously, James is dealing with it, and even Jude. And, and Jude, which is the last book right before Revelation, in verse 3 and 4, Jude writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Why does Jude feel compelled to write to them What's the problem going on in the church? Here's what he says. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are people who say the grace of God gives you license to do whatever you want. And that's what James is responding to. That is clearly what he's responding to. This message is desperately needed, you guys, for us today. Not just for them. Many people think that profession of faith, regardless of what kind of faith it is, is justifying. They bank their salvation on an experience they had in which they prayed a prayer or in which they walked down an aisle or in which in some other way they had some kind of come to Jesus moment in their life. And there's no conversion that follows that. No conversion that follows that. They have gone from that one experience to a life with no relationship with Christ. Their lives in no way reflect the profession of faith that comes from their lips. They have no good works to speak of. There's no fruit of faith and repentance being born in their lives. They don't attend church generally, nor do they really care to do so. They don't give financially to a church or missions or other causes, nor do they generally care to do so. They don't serve the body, don't reach out to unbelievers. Their moral behavior among coworkers and friends doesn't change. Their basic motivations don't change. The object of their joy is still their own pleasure in the world and not in Christ. They don't care about the poor in a demonstrable way. Their marriages are still a mess. Their parenting is still a mess. They don't care to read their Bibles and pray. There's basically nothing that sets them apart from the world. There's nothing that demonstrates change. In fact, all that's new in their life is that they now say they believe in Jesus. That's it. We're not looking for professions of faith. We're looking for conversion. We're looking for a work of the spirit in which he changes a person and that person believes and their life bears fruit. Now, does the bearing of fruit save them or justify them? No. Do you know what it does? It evidences their faith. Do you understand that? So James is going to argue that works are necessary to your justification. Do you want to know how? They're a necessary consequence of your justification, not a necessary condition. The necessary condition of your justification is faith. The necessary consequence is good works because it evidences conversion. In fact, he gives three descriptions of this bankrupt kind of faith that's happening all around us. He calls it dead faith. He calls it demonic faith. And he calls it useless faith. Look what he says in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So the first question James asks is really the controlling question for the entire passage. It's the question that he's trying to answer. Therefore, any exegesis or any interpretation or teaching of this passage that fails to answer this question 
is missing the point of the passage. He not only asks this question, but then he gives this analogy of how dead and useless faith without works is. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them to the things needed for the body. What good is that? See, James is pointing to a real problem in the church. They are saying, and he's using this analogy by way of analogy. They're saying, you know what? We care about the poor. We talk about our care for the poor all the time. In fact, when I see someone who's without clothing, without food, I say, go, you know, be warm and be filled. In other words, I pray a blessing for them. I pray for them. I I'm concerned. I pray. I pray blessing for them. And James says, what do you do to help? It's nice. You bless them, but you don't do anything to help with the body. You do nothing. So what good is your prayer or your blessing or your argument for con- stating you are concerned? It's just false religiosity. It's hypocrisy. By analogy, what good is faith that doesn't evidence self in works? See, do you see the connection he's making between those two things? I used to think that it would be a good idea to uh, make a little video. We were doing some videos for um, River Lakes at one point when I was the youth pastor there. And we, probably five years ago, and we were talking about doing little videos. And I wanted to do one where we... Um, you know, like saw somebody on the side of the road, broken down, tires off, things are, you know, broken down and, and, uh, and just do a little video where we drive by this, the whole video, we drive by, roll down the window and yell at the window. I'm praying someone will come and help you and just keep driving, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, you know, just to kind of make the point. What's, what's the use of that? It's useless. That's what James is pointing out. It's useless. Look what he says in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead faith. James is asserting that works are necessary to salvation. They are a necessary consequence of it. That's what he's asserting. Jesus says this is Jesus also says this. You guys know that, right? What is he saying? And John chapter 15 says, I'm the true vine, right? You are the branches. If you abide in me, remain in me, trust in me. In other words, you will what? Bear much fruit. You will. It's a guarantee. If you're trusting in Christ, you will bear fruit. If anyone does not bear fruit, he will be cut off. And thrown into the fire. Not good. Paul argues the same thing in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I'll read this to you. Paul makes a similar argument. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him. That being Jesus. We've been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved 
to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Been set free from sin. We're no longer enslaved to it. We can now live righteously because we've been united to Christ. And Paul expects that that will be the natural outflow of someone who's been converted. Someone who really believes. That's how they'll live. He argues the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In Ephesians 2.10, after he says, for by grace you have been saved, right? Not by works. You know what he says in 2.10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good Works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working or expressing itself through love. In other words, faith will express itself through love. See, if you claim, if your claim to faith does not issue in a changed life, if it does not bear fruit, if it doesn't evidence itself in good works, if it does not express itself through love, then it's dead faith. But James goes even further than saying it's dead. He even says it's demonic faith. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. What what happens here is James moves to an imaginary objector, right? Moves to an imaginary objector. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now this, you guys, is a really difficult passage to translate. Okay. For those of you who aren't, you know, uh, from a, you know, church background, you may not know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Okay. I didn't know that until almost when I went to seminary. In fact, when I first went to seminary, I was like, why do I have to take Greek? Because the New Testament was written in it. Oh, okay. Well, that's helpful. (laughs) I guess that's a good reason, but it's originally written in Greek. And part of the problem with Greek is punctuation is different than English. In fact, there isn't any. Um, And sometimes you have to determine where punctuation goes and where quotation marks go. On this particular passage is difficult because we don't know whether the we know the quotation mark should start. If you look at verse 18, but someone will say you have faith. We know it should start before the word you you have faith and I have works. We just don't know if it should end after works or if it should end at the end of verse 18. Right at the end of the verse. So it should should say you have faith and I have works. Close quote, or should it say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Close quote. These are really both good options for translating this passage. They bring out two different ideas, um, although they come to the same general conclusion. If the quotation ends at the end of the verse, at the end of verse 18, then James is introducing not an objector to his view, but a supporter of his view. When he says, but someone will say, he's saying, I'm going to introduce now a friend who's going to support my argument. Okay. And the supporter of his view is speaking to the false professor. And the supporter of his view is saying to the false professor, 
You know what? You say you have faith. I have works. You show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. That's one possibility. Would that be helpful to James argument? Sure it would. That's a support support for James argument. The other option is the quotation ends right after the first and I have works. But someone will say you have faith and I have works. If the quotation ends there, which it does in most English versions, by the way, most translators choose to go that direction. Then James is not introducing the argument of someone in agreement with him, but is citing his opponent who holds to faith that does not work. If this is the case, then the verse would mean essentially this. Some have faith and others have works. That's what the respondent would be saying, to which James would be replying, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And that would be how the argument would go. Now, I personally think that the second option is the best option. That the way that is, personally, that is quoted in James 2, verse 18, in most of your versions, at least certainly in the ESV, is, but some will say you have faith and I have works, end quote. That this is an objector. The reason I believe that is because that Greek word, but, um, there's two different choices there um, that could be brought up for that word. This particular word is the word Allah, which is a very strong contrast. So, it's, it seems to me most likely that this is an opponent who is arguing with Paul. And this opponent is saying, you know what? Some have works and some have faith. And Paul is saying, or excuse me, Paul, James, some have works and some have faith. And, and James is saying, you know what? You show me your, uh, you know, faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And that's James response and argument. Either way, the argument comes out the same, doesn't it? Either way, some claim to have faith without works, but James or his friend who he's introducing here responds that faith without works is dead. Either way. In fact, it's demonic. Look at 219. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, by the way, this phrase, you believe that um, you, you know, you believe that God is one can also be translated just like the Hebrew Shema from Deuteronomy, which is this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, what James is saying to this false professor is, you have good doctrine. You believe God is one, you do well. You you can sense a bit of sarcasm there, can't you? If you don't sense the sarcasm, even the demons believe and tremble, right? Right? He, he makes the argument, you've got great doctrine. Good theology. You're intellectually agreeing to the right things. So what? The demons believe it too. Their good doctrine even elicits fear of God. Did you hear that? In other words... So you've got doctrine that's as good as a demon. Good for you. Right? And when they believe it, they even fear. They tremble. But they're not saved, are they? Their profession of faith 
is not saving. The demons know who God is. They know who Jesus is. They're the first ones to identify him rightly when he walks into the synagogue. You're the holy one of God. They know. Have you come to torture us before the day? They know what's even coming for them. They've got the right doctrine. They believe or agree with the same things that many people out there claim to agree or believe in. So what? James's point. You want to be equated with a demon? If your profession of faith doesn't issue an obedience, then it's a demonic. James continues that not only is faith that does not show or demonstrate itself in good works, not only is it dead and demonic, but it's useless. Look what he says in verse 20. Do you want to be shown? You foolish person could also be translated, you empty man. Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? And now he goes into two examples to demonstrate that faith apart from works is useless and that works actually justifies your faith. Look what he says. Verse 21. First example is Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith, that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Why does James use Abraham's as the first example? For the same reason that Paul does. Right? Romans chapter 4, who's Paul's example of justification by faith alone? Abraham. Who's James's example here? Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is the father of the faith of the Jews and all who believe in their Messiah. He's the father of them all. And you notice that James jumps right into the story about Abraham and who? Isaac, and when, Jay, and when Abraham goes to offer Isaac up on the altar. What's interesting about this to me is that Abraham was declared righteous back in Genesis, Genesis 15, far before Isaac was ever even born. God says he believed and he counted to him as righteousness, the Bible says. Then, probably 30, 40 years later, he goes to offer up Isaac on the altar. He's already been declared righteous. He's already been declared to be justified. And now he's offering up Isaac. And that's the example James gives. Because James's point is not that that's when Abraham was saved or justified in the sense that he's declared righteous. That's when Abraham's faith was shown to be real. You follow that? That's when his faith was justified or shown to be true. It's because his faith was shown to be living faith rather than dead faith. It was shown to be useful faith rather than useless faith. His obedience demonstrated the reality of his face, faith. That's why it says that his faith was completed by his works. It was shown to be real. It was demonstrably living faith. 
not dead faith. Then he goes on in verse 24 and he says this. And this is his point in verse 24 when people use this to try to argue with Paul. James's point is that Abraham's faith was justified. But he says this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if we understand the context, then we understand that James is using the word justified as a statement of the fact that Abraham was shown to be a true believer by his works and not to be an empty professor of faith. You see, James view of use of faith here is is the idea faith. The way he uses this word in this passage is the idea of a empty, useless, dead, demonic, hypocritical profession of belief. That's how he's using the word faith here. So certainly we can say that this kind of faith does not justify. It's only faith that shows itself in works that is saving. So do Paul and James disagree? Because if you look at Romans chapter three, look there, Romans chapter three, verse 28 And keep your hand on James 2 at the same time. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now flip over to James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? You could see how people could point to these two verses and go, look, the Bible contradicts itself. The problem is they're not paying attention to context and they're not paying attention to how these two writers are using the same words differently. Paul, when he talks about justification and faith and works, uses all three of those words differently than James does. When Paul talks about justification, when Paul's talking about it, he's talking about your status before God. That's what he means by justification. Okay? Your legal status before God. When he talks about faith, Paul is talking about the instrument by which you receive that status. And when he's talking about works, Paul is often, and especially in Romans 3 and 4, talking about a false way of trying to get the justification or the status before God. Does that make sense? That's how he's using those words. James, on the other hand, when he talks about justification... He's talking about demonstrating the truth of a prior claim. He's talking about showing the reality that what you say you actually believe. That's what he means by justification. He's not talking about your legal status before God. When James talks about faith in this passage, he's talking about the idea of an empty profession, a useless statement, intellectual assent, not the instrumentality that Paul's talking about for receiving the righteousness of God. And when James talks about works, he's not using it negatively like Paul does as an attempt to get yourself saved. He's using it positively as an evidence of your salvation. They're using these words completely differently. That's why they don't disagree with each other in these scriptures. Paul would agree with James' statement in 324 or 224. And guess what? James would agree with Paul's in Romans 3.28. The second example they give is of Rahab. Look at verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 25 of James. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute 
justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, now think about this. Think of the absurdity of saying a prostitute was justified by her works in law keeping. Right? Was she really saved by all of her good works as a prostitute? Honestly, her incredible religious observance and her incredible law keeping. No, that's not what it's talking about here. So why does James say she was justified by good works? What he's saying is that her profession of faith in the God of the Jews was shown to be true when she helped the Jewish spies. That's what, she's, that's what he's saying. When they were in her house, this is the profession she made. And I don't want you to turn there. Just listen to Joshua 2. Here's the profession of faith that she made when they were in her house. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you do, did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Is that a profession of faith? Yes. Do you know how that profession of faith was justified or shown to be true? Because she helped them escape safely. That's what James is saying. James then concludes his argument that faith that does not bear fruit or evidence itself in good works is useless by giving one last analogy, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Without a spirit, a body is dead, isn't it? Without true conversion, a profession of faith is also dead. So what kind of faith do you have? Does your faith work? Is it faith that remains alone? Is it dead, demonic and useless faith? Is it just merely intellectual assent and agreement with the truth? Do you say, I believe in Jesus, but then... If you're really honest, I don't desire to serve him, worship him, gather together with other believers to encourage them and serve them. I don't desire to share Christ with unbelievers. I don't desire to change my lifestyle to reflect God's holiness on and on and on. See, and I want to make this clear. We're talking about a pattern of your life here. We're not talking about every instant or moment. Okay. James is talking about fruit. He's not saying that you will evidence this fruit 100% of the time and that suddenly when you believe you will become perfectly obedient. Okay. He's not suggesting that what he's talking about is when conversion happens, your life changes and you begin to mature, right? You have new life and you begin to mature. Is there a pattern of maturity in your life in Christ? Or did you have an exciting day one, mo one time, an exciting experience or prayer, and then flatline? 
It's talking about the general direction of your life. If the general direction of your life, the general direction of your life is not one of growing passion for God's glory, growing joy in the presence of God, growing desire to please God through corporate worship and the service of others, growing compulsion to want to proclaim the gospel, then your faith is dead, demonic, and useless. That's what James has to say about it. It's pretty strong teaching, isn't it? And you need to repent because such faith can't save you. But Jesus can. I'm not telling you to drum up this kind of faith. I want to be careful here. I'm not saying go home. You don't have this kind of faith. Go home and drum it up. It's not what I'm telling you to do. This kind of faith is a gift of God. You just ask him for it. Plead with him for it. It's a prayer he promises to answer. Doesn't he? Jesus knew you would fail to have this kind of faith in and of yourself. Do you know that? He knew you would. It's why he came and trusted God perfectly in your place. Jesus' trust in God was never hypocritical or false or empty. His trust always issued in perfect obedience to the will of his Father in all things. And that's why we look to him as our representative. Now, Sovereign Grace, we need to open our eyes to the people around us. This isn't a fun thing to teach. I mean, it's not exciting to come and tell you Some of you may have demonic faith. That's encouraging message, pastor. Thanks. It's not an encouraging thing to say that, you know what? It may be worse out there than we think. More people may be unsaved than you're currently reaching out to. That that's not an encouraging message to be delivering. But the fact of the matter is, It's our responsibility to be proclaiming the gospel all the time to people. And it's a message we have to proclaim to those who are both solid, maturing believers, or at least seem to be, and people who look irreligious and worldly. Because you know what? The fact of the matter is both of those people need to hear the gospel. And it's even possible that the one who looks pretty good is themselves unsaved. That's possible. You know that, right? They need to hear the gospel. You just got to proclaim the gospel. That's, that's the answer to this. What do you do if you got somebody, you're married to somebody, or you have somebody in your family or a friend who you know is an empty professor of faith? What do you do? Do you tell them, get to work? Start proving yourself to God and preach works to them? you preach the gospel to them that's it that's all we do we preach the gospel that's the message we have to give and if you're an unbeliever here this morning or someone who has professed faith for years but has flatlined through that whole time then the gospel's for you Jesus died for you repent repent Turn and believe in him and you will be saved. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you um, for the truth in your word. And, and 
Lord, for the corrective um, that James gives to so many of us um, who somehow pervert Paul's teaching into the thing, to the idea that somehow grace frees us to be as sinful as we want. Lord, we know that's not the truth, that conversion happens when we truly believe. And Lord, you give us a desire to want to be holy. It isn't a self-generated desire. It isn't something we can work up, but Lord, you give it to us as a gift, and we're thankful for that. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you, those who profess to know you, but um, really don't. Lord, we pray that you would show them the truth. They would come to faith in you for your glory. Amen.